Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dwell on Truth. This is Dan Bodwin. My name's Brenton Powers. And we're so glad that you joined us today as we continue our journey through the Gospel of John. So last week, we talked about Jesus' triumphal entry in John chapter 12 when he came into Jerusalem and in one way was accepted as king by the people there. And then we're talking about some of his interactions with the people after that. Um, We're talking about the unbelief of the people and those people who had seen many signs, but still for some reason did not believe who he claimed to be. And then we're going to talk more about Jesus' purpose in coming into the world, how he came into the world to save. So let's go ahead and start by reading the passage. So once again, we're going to look at John chapter 12. We're going to be starting in verse 36. So, Brenton, can we go ahead and read through that passage, and can you start with verse 36, please? Absolutely. So, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Good stuff. So a lot of stuff that we can go through in here. Why don't we just start one verse at a time, like we often do, with 36, and uh, see where God's Word and His Spirit take us. All right. Okay, so verse 36, if we're going back to Palm Sunday, as we talked about last week, this would be the very end of the day. And uh, just as I was doing a comparison between John's gospel and the other gospels, you know, that's a good thing to harmonize and see the internal consistency in all four of the gospels. They all talk about this, that day that we studied last week called Palm Sunday with the triumphal entry and Jesus at the end of the day didn't stay in Jerusalem. He actually went back to Bethany, according to the other gospel, Matthew 21, verse 17, and leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Remember, that's where his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. It was only a couple of miles from Jerusalem, so... Yeah. So still in the same area, but not staying in Jerusalem proper. Mm -hmm. He hid himself. He wasn't playing hide-and-seek. He wasn't afraid. It was getting close to the time that he would be publicly executed, and he's going to show up publicly in the temple, but we see a lot happening in this last week. We do. We do. With this verse, we're going from five days before Passover to four days before Passover. In fact, a huge amount of the rest of the of the Gospel of John is going to be detailing that last week. It's like a full half of the book is talking about that last week before the crucifixion and the crucifixion itself. Right. Same with the other Gospels. But this is the place where they kind of depart from each other being synoptic or being synonymous with covering the teachings that Jesus gave. Matthew's Gospel between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, 
Mm-hmm. That would be four days. Yeah. During those days, Matthew's gospel records that Jesus spoke in a lot of parables, and he did so publicly in a way that not everyone would understand what the point of the parables were, although some of them, the Pharisees understood he was speaking against them. Yeah. But John's gospel spends more time showing how Jesus spoke to his disciples while he was in private mm. and how he served them, how he loved them, how he prepared them for the time when he would no longer be with them physically in the world, and a lot about the Holy Spirit in the following chapters. So same time period, but the Gospels have different audiences, Mm -hmm. so different details are given, details that would be appropriate and helpful to the audiences that the different Gospel writers are speaking to. Yeah. What did you say last week, that uh, Matthew was written for whom and John was written for whom? J. Vernon McGee, an old Bible teacher, put it this way, the four Gospels for four different types of people. Matthew was for the religious man. Mark was for the the strong man or the man of action. Um, Luke is for the intellectual man, and then John is for the wretched man. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, while we were talking, that John is in many ways the gospel of love. And of course, it's the wretched man who sees his wretchedness that needs that love and that encouragement from God. So that, I think, is a a big reason why that emphasis is there. Mm -hmm. And they also highlight a a different facet of Jesus's character. Yes. Matthew was highlighting Jesus as the king of the Jews to a Jewish audience. Mm -hmm. Therefore, he talks a lot about the kingdom parables. Uh, John emphasizes Jesus as the God-man, mm, yes, fully God yet fully man, which is a beautiful, ironic, and uh, mysterious union. It is. And how those things interplay, Jesus's divine nature and human nature. We see a lot of that being fleshed out, if you will, or yeah, yeah. in Jesus's teaching, it, it becomes clear that Like we ended this chapter, every word that Jesus said was what the Father told him to say. And so the authority of Jesus is the authority of God. And so rejecting Jesus is tantamount to rejecting God himself, because Jesus is God, the Son. Yes, indeed. So we'll talk about the Trinity. Yeah, yeah. There's a few references in this passage to Isaiah, so I've prepared some cross-references from Isaiah to give us uh, some background. I do love Isaiah, and, and Isaiah is also an interesting one because as far as uh, manuscripts, it's the best attested of the Old Testament books. Mm-hmm. When you hear about um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that was not all Bible books, but the big find in the Dead Sea Scrolls were the Isaiah Scrolls. So yeah. anyway, so where are we? Still back in 37. I believe, correct? Yeah, maybe we can break up that 37 to 41 as one chunk. Speaking of Isaiah, there's three references to Isaiah in verse 37 to 41 I'd love to review. You've got some thoughts. Let me go ahead and read it, and then you can jump in with your cross-references. Okay. Um, So, verse 37, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. And that's from Isaiah 53. And then verse 39, therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. And that is from Isaiah 6. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Brenton. For people who haven't maybe read the Old Testament, Isaiah is one of the major prophets. Mm -hmm. It includes 66 chapters Mm-hmm. Uh, some very significant prophecies. When I look at a verse like John twelve forty one, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. It draws out the curious Bible nerd in me that wants to uh, <laughs> review the whole book of Isaiah for what did Isaiah say about Jesus? And the claim that Isaiah saw his glory, when you know that Isaiah lived in the 8th century, like 700 years before Christ, then you think, well, the secular person would think, well, of course, he didn't know Jesus because they didn't live at the same time. However, what you need to factor in is that the Bible is God's word. Isaiah was a prophet, and God spoke to him and gave him what to write. Uh, And these prophecies from Isaiah's perspective and the visions that Isaiah had revealed to him who Jesus was, he saw his glory, John says, and spoke of him. So someone who's familiar with the book of Isaiah, even someone who's not familiar with the book of Isaiah, can recognize some statements as being about Jesus. Uh, Let me say that again. 
Whether you're familiar with the prophet Isaiah or not, I think if I read some of these prophecies, you too will conclude that Isaiah was speaking of Jesus. And the best explanation for that is that it's true, that Isaiah saw Jesus's glory through visions and through prophecies that the Father gave him. So I'd love to go through some of those. Yeah. Are you okay with me reading that first one from Isaiah 6? Just because that's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Let's start with Isaiah 6. You even have it memorized, I think, Dan, right? I have a portion of it memorized, yes. Let's hear it. Sure. And this is Isaiah 6, starting with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So that is important because when it says in this passage that he, that he saw his glory, he's referring to that beginning passage of chapter 6 where it talks about the glory in the throne room of God. And we know that because when we look at verse 40, it's quoting from the section after talking about uh, God displaying his glory. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. So there's a direct um, reference between the two. Mm -hmm. And the word glory in Isaiah 6.10 is in reference to the Lord of hosts who's sitting on the throne and the train yes. of his robe fills the temple and the whole earth is full of his glory. It's, it's a beautiful song if you've never heard that one before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the claim from John that Isaiah saw Jesus's glory is making us think that John is here recognizing Jesus is not just a man, but he is the Lord of hosts, that he is God. This is not an appropriate thing to say if Jesus was not God, that Isaiah saw his glory because Isaiah saw the glory of God. Amen. Yeah, just to break that one chapter that uh, Dan read into three parts, I see the first part is that revelation of the Lord's glory to Isaiah. Mm -hmm. Isaiah's instant response to seeing God in his glory and holiness was to say, woe is me, I'm lost, I'm unclean, mm. and I am in trouble because I'm seeing God. But then we see Isaiah. Isaiah converted and commissioned, converted from being lost and unclean and under God's judgment. How did that happen? When a burning coal from the altar was brought and touched his lips that were unclean, and it says your sin was atoned for, guilt taken away. And then you see Isaiah's response then was to volunteer to be sent. When God says, who shall go for us? And he says, here I am, send me. Oh, I could preach on that for a long time as a missionary. That's... Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, because God so loved us and forgave us, we're willing to go wherever he would send us. Here we are. Amen. And Amen. so the foreshadow of his mission, uh, Isaiah's mission being one to a people that were stubborn and blind and re rebellious, it's a near prophecy fulfillment that they would hear what he's saying but really wouldn't understand, and that would be part of God's judgment. Yes. But it's also foreshadowing Jesus's mission to speak in parables that not everyone would understand, that if they would have understood it, they would have turned and been converted and been forgiven and 
received life. And so that does lead us to some difficult interpretations. How do we handle the, yes. you know, the heart of Jesus being to save? But then there's this passage about that he's blinding people so they wouldn't be saved. Like, what's going on with that? Dan and I will wrestle with that in a little bit. Yes. Uh, but we'll, we'll come back to that. But first, I want to give you some more references. I think that Isaiah saw his glory more than just there in that vision of the heavenly temple, the heavenly throne room. Certainly. I think we also get glimpses into Jesus's glory just through the very words of how he would be revealed in the earth. So let me run through a few verses. Well, I say a few, but (laughs) I have verses from Isaiah chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 26, 29, 40, 42, 49, 50, 52, 53, and 60 and 61. So this may take a little bit just to read, and I'm just going to read some of my notes and some of the scriptures. Cool. And you tell me if this doesn't sound like Isaiah's writing specifically about Jesus of Nazareth, who lived 2,000 years ago on the earth. Starting with Isaiah chapter 7, you may have heard this at Christmas time. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then verse 14 of Isaiah chapter 8, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Peter mentions that one that Jesus fulfills that as people stumbled over Jesus, who is to be the chief cornerstone. Yes, people still stumble over Jesus. Yep. Isaiah 9, 7. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Mm. So predicting Jesus's kingdom that will be an everlasting kingdom established in justice and righteousness. Mm -hmm. Of course, we don't yet see that on the earth, but Mm. this is an important point to make. Isaiah saw some some things that were relating to his first coming and his second coming. As he's writing from over 700 years before his first coming, I think sometimes it wasn't as clear to Isaiah that there would be a division between his first coming and second coming. But Jesus, when he uh, showed up in his synagogue in Nazareth, he read from the prophecy of Isaiah that, and I'm going to jump ahead to Isaiah 61, Mm -hmm. the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, comma, right there, when Jesus quoted this passage from Isaiah, he stopped and said, this has been fulfilled in your presence. What he didn't read is the other half of that verse, verse 2, that says, and the day of vengeance of our God. And so that's referring to the day of Jesus' second coming, when vengeance is his and he will repay, says the Lord. So there is a comma, which represents at least 2,000 years of, of uh, church history. Yeah, a little bit of time there. Before the rest of this is to be fulfilled. But from Isaiah's perspective, it's just, he's, he's looking forward. All of this is future from his perspective. From our perspective, yeah. some of this is past fulfilled and some is yet to be fulfilled. Just a few more verses. I'm just going to skim. Isaiah 11 talks about Jesus being a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the line of David, who would be the king that Jesus would be a descendant of as well. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Hmm. Isaiah 11.10, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So another reference to Isaiah seeing his glory. I think he's looking forward to it, the coming of Jesus there as well. Amen. That's we, and we ought to be. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be an amazing thing when Jesus comes back. Yes. Isaiah 26, 19 predicts the uh, bodily resurrection. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Isaiah 29, verse 18 and Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 predicts that in that day, the deaf will hear, the blind will see, the lame will leap, the mute will sing and water will come out of the heart. Jesus talked about living water. If you come to him, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water, speaking of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus did all of these healings, the deaf, the blind, the lame, and the mute. He fulfilled those prophecies. As well as Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 5, a voice cries in the wilderness, 
we recognize this is John the Baptist. Yes. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord, there's that key phrase, Isaiah saw his glory. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. Jesus being the word of God reveals the glory of God, full of grace and truth, as John talked about. And then Isaiah 40, verse 1 through 6, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord God, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. So this theme of Jesus being revealed as the light of the world continues in Isaiah 49 verse 6, Mm -hmm. to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So I I don't have time to read everything, but Isaiah 50 (laughs) talks about how Jesus would not rebel or turn away from the Father, but obeyed all the way to the cross. His back would be whipped, his face would be struck, his beard would be ripped out, and he would be spat upon. All of those things came to pass. Isaiah 52 verse 13, all the way through the next chapter, Isaiah 53, if you've heard us preach the gospel on the streets, we often refer to Isaiah 53. It's kind of a mountaintop chapter, isn't it? It is, it is. And it's one of those that we particularly like to share with our Jewish friends, too, because this is the chapter that is often not read to them because it so clearly speaks about Jesus. Yeah, some Jews call it the forbidden chapter because yes. they don't teach it anymore in the non-Messianic <laughs> synagogues. There's too many people. I can see why. Yeah, it sounds like the New Testament when you're reading it. Yeah. I've had that reaction. Yeah, I'll just skim it for those who aren't familiar with what we're talking about. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not yet been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. In Isaiah 53, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. Mind you, this was written 700 years before Roman crucifixion. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, shall he see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear 
their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Really does sound like a New Testament passage, not an Old Testament passage. Yes, so many important truths there, gospel truths, salvation truths, the atoning work of Jesus on the cross clearly described there. And so take heart, my friends, if Isaiah looked forward to the first coming of Jesus where he would deal with sin, and he looked past that to the second coming where he would be revealed in glory, let us hold fast to these prophetic words, as Peter says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. These fulfilled prophecies can give you confidence and faith that it is just as God described. It happened just as he predicted. And finally, the last uh, couple of chapters, uh, from Isaiah, where he saw his glory, um, Isaiah 60, verse 1 through 3, his glorious light will arise in the world. It says, arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. A little later it says, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Powerful stuff. Indeed. So lift up your eyes all around, it says Isaiah (laughs) 60, verse 4, and see, they all gather together, they come to you, your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. Young camels of Midian and Ephah and all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. Sound familiar? That does sound familiar. And shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Hmm. So many little details in Isaiah just still amazes me that the Old Testament book God chose to preserve the most was the one that had the most prophecies about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Clearly, clearly in the Old Testament. That was not by accident. Yeah. And you could check that out yourself if you check out the mm-hmm. Great Isaiah Scroll, which is the largest and oldest of all the Dead Sea Scrolls found in its entirety, the book of Isaiah. Two copies of it was found. One is entirely yeah. visible and been scanned by Google and available. Mm-hmm. You can go to Britannica.com. You can go to uh, the Israel uh, Museum. I've been there in Jerusalem at the Mm -hmm. Shrine of the Book Museum, and I saw a facsimile copy they have enshrined there in the center of, as the centerpiece of the museum. And I have to tell this story real quick. Sure. And then I'll turn it back over to you, Dan. No, no worries at all. When I was there, I had done some studies of this great Isaiah scroll, and I recognized the blotches that were next to the chapter that I just read, Isaiah 53. And there's Jews and Gentiles alike in this museum, and I found a Jew who could read Hebrew. Anyone who reads modern Hebrew could actually read this. And I asked, could you tell me what this paragraph is about? I knew what it was about. (laughs) I wanted to witness to him. So he's like, oh, it's talking about some servant and him suffering and being pierced. And I was like, does that sound like Jesus to you? Hmm. He's like, you might be right. (laughs) To think about that. So the evidence is there, and the, the Word of God is there. That's all I have to say about that. Well, it's a good one. Thanks, Dan. I actually wrote a paper in Bible college on this subject, Jesus and <laughs> Isaiah. But it was refreshing and thrilling to review some of these today. Well, absolutely. And those are the kind of things that we do want to share, because it's difficult for somebody from the outside who doesn't have this kind of background to dismiss the idea of prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about Jesus because they've never looked into them, and most of them have no desire to. But when you can actually look at those prophecies one by one, and the specific details that it has about Jesus, and who he is, and what he would do, and how he would come, even the details about him being the suffering servant rather than the conquering king that we'll see later, all of that stuff is so relevant, because, I mean, it's just evidence on top of evidence on top of evidence on top of evidence. At what point do you just have to throw up your hands and say, okay, I get it. The Bible talks about Jesus. Yes. And it really does. So yeah. that's a good thing. It's a good thing. You almost have to want to be deceived to not believe that this is all about Jesus. Yeah, this is true. But there are some people that almost want to be deceived, aren't there? In fact, that's uh, part of the next passage or part of this section that we can talk about is those people who, for some reason, could not believe. They had all the evidence placed in front of them. 
And they looked at that and still looked at Jesus and said, nope, I'm not buying it. You know, it's it's like they missed what should have been obvious. Yeah, we said we'd circle back to that. So let's examine that. Maybe we yeah. hopefully can help you to not be too confused, although it can be a confusing passage. And there's different ways of resolving this tension <laughs> that is there. But let's let's start with that verse. It's, it's really interesting. John 12, 39, mm-hmm. therefore they could not believe. Mm-hmm. And so it, there's a therefore, and then followed by four, Isaiah said. So actually, I think we can come up with a few reasons why they could not believe. But let's start with just that truth, right? That there are some people at some point where they could not believe. We read earlier that they would not believe. Here we're reading that they could not. That yeah. I think that means that they had an inability to believe at this point. What do you think that means? Yeah, something at least about that particular time and place. I don't think we should read too much into it, but at that time and place, they did not have the capability of believing in Jesus. And part of that, as it says, was so that prophecy would be fulfilled. God had a plan um, for them and for Jesus in that place, and he worked out his plan through this. So what are some of the reasons why maybe they could not believe? Just looking at the context, you know, I don't want to insert my opinion here, but I do want to draw out some of the reasons. There is a word therefore, and whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, you should ask what that's there for. (laughs) Yes. Right? So going back to verse 37, it says, Though he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe in him. So they did not believe, and then that turned into a could not believe. Because we like to think that if we just could give our friends enough signs, then they would believe. But for some who hardened their hearts when they're seeing these signs, then like Pharaoh, who hardened his heart, eventually he reached a point where God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And one way of interpreting that is that God strengthened him in, in his decision to resist God. Yeah. But that can be interpreted different ways. Yeah. But it's an important one because how I would resolve this versus how you would resolve it, and we would probably resolve it in slightly different ways. I like looking at the Pharaoh thing because in some cases it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and in some cases it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Is it one? Is it both? My understanding of that, and and this is based on a group of theological presuppositions, um, is that God did not go contrary to Pharaoh's will. Pharaoh was wicked. He wanted to rebel against God. He didn't want to let the Israelites go. And God kept him on that course um, for his own purposes, once again, to go through the plagues and eventually get to the, the death of the firstborn and the slaughter of the lamb and the blood on the lintel and the doorposts. And, and God had a purpose in that whole process. And he went consistently with Pharaoh's desires to fulfill his, that is God's, purposes. Yeah, well put. I think I agree with that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I I think you and I both agree that there are some people who represent a position where they would say that God is causing them to sin or to not believe because of God's own choice of uh, double predestination. You referred to it earlier as some people believe that God chooses some people for heaven and other people for hell. Yeah, I would not agree with that. Yeah, we don't hold that position. And I would also think that we both hold the position Position that God is just, God is good, God is merciful. But I'd, I'd like to stick with what Isaiah says here in verse 40 of John 12. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, which is a difficult thing to acknowledge that God does these things. It is. It's very difficult. Why does he do these things? It says, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. We're interpreting the verse 38. Yes, yes, How how is it? I guess the question that people would ask, people do ask, and I've asked, how do you resolve the mercy of God that he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, but that they should turn and live? Mm -hmm. And he's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But this verse seems to indicate that he is actually instrumental in their blindness Mm -hmm. and their hardened heart 
heart, lest they would see and understand and turn and be healed. Like, there's a chain of things that have to happen here. Yes. And if God doesn't allow step one and two to happen, then they'll never get to three, four, or five. Correct. So how is God just and allow this to happen if he's really merciful? Yeah, well, that is one of those challenges. And the uh, I, I think the, the difficulty is resolving God's sovereignty with man's responsibility. It is true that man is responsible for his sin um, and that God justly judges him, but it's also true that God is sovereign. And, and we could go deep in that. We don't have to, but I think the one thing that's clear from God's sovereignty is control over everything is that God could have caused things to happen differently, and he didn't. Mm-hmm. At the very least, it means that. So why does God do that? I mean, could God have saved? Could God have done things in such a way, orchestrated things in such a way that everybody would be saved? I would argue yes, but he chose not to. So yeah, it's. I have to go back to to um, Romans chapter nine on that one. We've talked about this before. I'm a Calvinist, and and there are some differences in the way that we see these things. And that doesn't mean that I'm comfortable with all of those ideas. But there are some passages that are difficult passages that you just have to look at and grit your teeth and say, well, God says this is true. There are ways that you're going to resolve it. And there's as you're talking, I'm thinking of ways that a, that a non-Calvinist would resolve this. Of course. And then there's a, sometimes I try to take the middle position because both extremes can be built on the teachings of men. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to stick to Scripture as much as possible. Let me just, for devil's advocate, Yeah. <laughs> and I don't hold this position, and that is that some people would emphasize the free will of man so much that they would be blind to and explain away the verses that sounds like God is in any way contributing to sealing people's fate, that it's all, you know, you send yourself to hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And God doesn't send anyone to hell. The Bible doesn't teach that. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. But I've heard that taught. I don't believe that. Yeah, and I've never never heard you espouse that. You know, I know (laughs) that about you, so... But on the other hand, like if you take to an extreme the the free will of man and you try to explain these verses away, mm-hmm. you'd have to insert some assumptions. Yeah. Still, that elevates man's will as if God has no will. God has a will in this. Yeah, yeah. But though I think the middle position where I would say biblically we do have a, a strong leg to stand on is that without faith, it's impossible to please God, as it says in Hebrews 11. Correct. And going, Correct. going back to Abraham, Abraham believed in the Lord, and God counted that as righteousness. The point is that God's will is to save those who believe. And for those who've already hardened their hearts to not believe, even though Jesus gave them every sign and reason to believe, Mm -hmm. they're accountable for their unbelief in such a way that God says, you won't believe? Fine. I'm going to judge you for your unbelief, and I'm going to seal you in that unbelief. I'm not going to force you to believe. That would be the Arminianist perspective. God doesn't force (laughs) you to believe. But And then the accusation is that some Calvinists believe that God forces people to believe so that he would heal them. But here he says he doesn't. So what do you say to that, Dan? <laughs> well, it's important how we frame it. As a Calvinist, I would not say it in a way that God forces us to believe, but I would say that we are so radically dead in our sins that we have no ability to believe until and unless by the power of God's Spirit, he gives us that ability. So all of us by nature are in rebellion and are going to stay in rebellion unless we have something supernatural done by God's Spirit that will pull us out of that. So both of us believe in the transforming work of the Spirit, and we would put it on a, on different sides of the salvation process, I guess you could say it. Mm-hmm. But we both uphold that God is responsible for our salvation. Yes. And would you agree that if man is condemned, it is because of his own rejection and unbelief? Absolutely. And you know what? We never actually read that passage in Romans 9. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to read that passage in Romans 9? So what Romans 9 actually says is, starting in verse 14, and this is God really anticipating this objection that people are going to have. This isn't fair that God hardens their hearts and they have no ability and he still judges them. So it says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says of Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not for the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles. And we could go further, but that's enough. I think that makes the point. I would just encourage people to read it for themselves because we're going to sometimes come to different conclusions. I don't want to read too much into the text. I don't want anybody else to read too much into the text. I just want people to read the text. Okay. As I read a lot of verses from Isaiah, sometimes it's good just to quote it and leave it there. (laughs) Yes, indeed. So in spite of the fact that there were some people that would not and could not believe, going back to John 12, we see that there were some, even among the leaders, who did believe. Who did. But they maybe had another problem, and that is the fear of man. Let's look at that section here in John 12. Starts in verse 42 and says this. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So on the other side of the unbelief of many of the religious leaders, including the Pharisees, John gives us this insight that there were some that did, in fact, believe in Jesus. Maybe you can think of one by name, Nicodemus, who came to him by night. Some wonder whether he came at night because he was fearful of being seen, seeking to learn from Jesus. When he came to Jesus, he said, we know that you are from God. So we, uh, maybe he represented a contingency of the Pharisees who weren't maybe outspoken, but knew the scriptures and knew deep down that Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures. However, even with that faith, they had a problem. And it's not unlike the problem that the disciples themselves wrestled with when Jesus was arrested. That is the fear of man. Or to put it another way, they honored what man thought of them more than what God thought. And maybe we don't think about fear in that way, but we should. When you're afraid, what are you concerned about? That you're going to get in trouble with people because fear has to do with punishment, the Bible says. But the Bible says it's the beginning of wisdom to fear the Lord, because ultimately God is the judge. But Jesus said, don't fear him who can, worst case scenario, kill your body, and after that has no power. But fear him, I believe he's speaking of God, who after killing the body can cast your soul into hell. A much greater fear, is it not? So the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So why is the fear of man or the desire for man's honor a problem? Well, Proverbs 29:25 says, the fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Proverbs 14:27 says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. 1 Thessalonians 2:6, Paul says, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So we should care for people. We should not care about what people think of us. And this motivates me to go out and share the gospel. I need to care more about where they're going after they die than what will happen to me after I share the gospel with them. I may be rejected by people if I stand up for Christ, but if Christ is for me, who can be against me? So the lesson here is clear. Don't fear losing honor from people when you believe in the Lord. Be open about your faith in the Lord Jesus, regardless of what it might cost you from other men, God will honor you.
So the rest of the passage, the rest of the chapter, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him. Him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. When we were reading it, I had a new insight into that last verse. Hmm. What is the commandment he's talking about? He's talking about the commandment of the Father to Jesus, what to say, or the previous verse. For I've not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Yes. And so the importance of Jesus obeying the Father and obeying every commandment that the Father gave to the Son, what to say, meant eternal life for those who would believe in him. Hmm. And if it's okay, I want to add one more little passage from the book of Isaiah that I think is relevant here. Because we talk, we have Jesus talking and giving truths, but also saying that this truth is from the Father. And he's talking kind of the unity between Father and Son in in purpose. And I think something that really frames this well also from Isaiah is um, Isaiah 44, verse 6. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So we actually have two names in there, you know, which is clearly, I believe, uh, referring to the Father and the Son, the Lord of hosts, and then it's, I said this, I am the first, I am the last two persons, one being, one name. I think that's powerful. Yes, it is. It speaks for itself. Well, let me say this. I mean, one of the biggest confusions that people have is how God can be triune or how God can be one being and more than one person. So what we see in John, we see two persons. We see a unity of purpose at the very least. But then in Isaiah, much earlier, we see a unity of being between these two persons. So I think we need to, so I think we should read John chapter 12 in light of all of those things in Isaiah, including Isaiah 44, 6. You know, particularly since, you know, in this passage, we've just gotten a couple of passages specifically quoted by John from the book of Isaiah. What else does the the book of Isaiah say about the Lord of hosts? What does it say about the nature of God and the connection between Father and Son? Definitely supports the doctrine of the Trinity, and all Christians who are Bible-believing, born-again, evangelical believers believe in the Trinity, and Catholics are supposed to believe in the Trinity as well. What are some groups that would reject the this Trinitarian idea that Jesus is God and the Father is God, but they're distinct persons? Would the uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Islam fall into that category? Well, the Mormons would say that they believe in the Trinity, but their idea is three persons and three beings. So 44.6 is one of the ones that I bring up with Mormons because it has two persons and then it says, I am. I am the first. I am the last. So two persons, one being. They would say it's two different beings. But Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses, yes, they would both say that that the Trinity is false and, and that there is, you know, in one case, well, I mean, in both cases, basically, they would say that Jesus is a man, although um, Jehovah's Witnesses would say he was also the Archangel Michael. So, yeah, lots of problems there. It just doesn't fit with what the, the totality of the text says. You mean what the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons teach doesn't fit with what the Bible says? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Correct. So going on from there, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, and whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. But that first one, whoever sees me has seen him who sent me. So if we see Jesus, we see the Father. To see Jesus is to see God. The identity of Jesus being one with the Father. Mm -hmm. Jesus is basically claiming that rejecting him is tantamount to rejecting the Father. And if you reject me, you're rejecting God. 
-hmm. So there's that consistency through this last paragraph. Jesus is faithfully representing the Father, and yet Mm -hmm. there's his humility as the Son who always does what the Father tells him to do. As he says in Mm -hmm. verse 49, I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father has sent me, has himself given me commandment what to say and what to speak. So it all goes back to that Jesus' commentary on those who reject him. They're not just rejecting Mm -hmm. him, they're rejecting God. That kind of flies in the face of our modern sensibilities of pluralism and everyone has their own way to God and your way may be Jesus. You know, if you're out there listening to this and you're saying, that's so narrow. You're saying that if I don't believe in Jesus, that I don't believe in God. What about all the other people who say they believe in God, but they don't Mm. receive Jesus? They reject the claim of Jesus that he's equal with the Father, that if you reject him, you're rejecting the Father. Can't someone believe in God and not believe in Jesus? Well, not according to Jesus. Not according. Well, I mean, they can they can believe that God exists, but they cannot believe in the true God without accepting, you know, what the true God has said about Jesus, His Son. You know, there's there is that complete and perfect unity between the Father and the Son. You can't accept one and reject the other. It doesn't work that way. And God is the one that sets that standard. We don't get to change the standard because it becomes uncomfortable for us. Yeah. We need to come to God and, and receive him on his terms. And his terms are, Amen. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And so if you try to make another way, Jesus said, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. If someone claims to be another way to God than Jesus, that's the Antichrist. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. Yes. In fact, yes. I would say it goes all the way back to the garden, to the father of lies, as Jesus calls him, Satan, the serpent of old, who lies and is the father of of lies. So this might get me in some hot water with Muslims, but (laughs) I believe if they don't receive Jesus as the Son of God that he claimed to be, then they're rejecting God because they've believed the lies of Satan. So where do these other world religions come from? If they're anti-Christ, then they Mm -hmm. are from Satan, ultimately. Yes. I would point back to them. And some of them are, I feel bad, they're victims of Satan's lies. Yes, yes. But some of them know better, and they may be not just deceived, but also deceiving others. And that is really Satan. Yes. Yeah. They lie to themselves to give themselves the ability to lie to others. That's a scary thing. When you harden your heart against the truth. It is. There's a saying, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. So don't harden your hearts. As Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In conclusion, what are we to do with this passage? As we look back, we see a few imperatives here. You cannot blame God for your unbelief because Jesus calls people to believe. Going back to the very first verse we read tonight, John 12, 36, Mm -hmm. Jesus gave the imperative command, believe in the light while you have time. And then he, he warns against people who are loving man's honor more than God's glory. And so they need to repent of that. That's a warning. So number one, believe. Number two, Two, repent. Number three, we're called to remain in the light, to walk in the light, and don't remain in darkness. If you've put your trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, and you've repented of your sins, meaning changing your mind from the direction about the direction of your life, Jesus is calling you to not just believe in the light, but remain in the light and don't remain in darkness. That means turning away, forsaking your sins, and you may need to turn away from some unhealthy, un- uh, some sinful relationship. Mm. in order to pursue and and follow Jesus. And so, fourthly, a disciple learns to keep his words. Jesus refers to keeping the the commandment of the Father, whatever he would say and do. So, as disciples, as learners, as students of Jesus, as followers, we need to learn to keep his words. That's Mm. what it means to be a Christian, someone who believes, repents, walks in the light, and learns to keep Jesus's words. We hope that you will do those things in response to God's word and not harden your heart lest the Lord would keep you from the solution of of believing in him for eternal life that you may be converted and saved and he would heal you if you would turn to him. So do it today while you still have time. That's right. You need to have a sense of urgency, my friends, because we don't know when our last day is going to come. Um, so while God has given you time, flee from the darkness 
flee to the light and trust in the light, Jesus Christ alone. Let me add, too, not just while he's giving you time, but while you can. There may come a time where you still have time on this earth, but you've reached a point where your heart is so hard and so Mm. blind because you've pulled the wool over your own eyes. God forbid that time comes after tonight. Tonight might be your last opportunity when you can believe, so do it while you can. Amen. May God give you the ability to turn and trust in him. (laughs) And he'll figure out how it all works between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Our part is what we're responsible for. So that's right. Let's keep that's right. going through the Gospel of John. I encourage you to dwell on truth. Yeah, so if you have any questions or if you're struggling with this, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to get together with you. You can reach out to us. You can find us, of course, on the web at dwellontruth.org. That's Brenton's site. Or on my site, yoursoulmatters.org. Or at our joint site, oacnorcal.org. You can also reach us through email. You can reach out to oacnorcal at gmail.com. And any way we can help you or encourage you, we would love to do that. So we hope to hear from you. Have a blessed rest of your week or weekend. And we hope you join us again next week. Amen. God bless you.